All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Actually, I'm going to start reading this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, those of you visiting with us, we have uh, been going through the letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so we're just kind of taking it piece by piece each week. Uh, and so uh, we finished up with chapter 9 last week, but since there's some continuity between chapters, I just want to read from the rest of chapter 9 into chapter 10. So please follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. So I do not run aimlessly, verse 26. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, chapter 10, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that they might not desire evil, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Pray with me. Lord, now as we continue in this first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, Father, we are reminded again and again of how often we see themes that they dealt with in the first century being dealt with by us in the 21st century. We see, Lord, such a connection to our first century brothers and sisters, especially as we look at our own hearts and evaluate the temptations that we have and the ways that we are tempted to go after other false gods and false Christs. Lord, we need your help today because though we can read this, though we might even be able to understand it, it is not unless your spirit enables us to apply this to our lives that this will transform us. And so we want to ask for your help today, Holy Spirit. We call on you to take of what is Christ's and declare it to us that we might grow as sons and daughters of God. I pray for the one in our midst who does not know you, Jesus, savingly. I pray that even this text written to Christians would have the effect and the power of transforming their heart as well and making them one of your own. Help your messenger now. Help us all to hear 
In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen. Thank you for being seated. From 1933 to 1945, the Dachau concentration camp near Munich imprisoned some 200,000 political prisoners of the Nazi regime. They also imprisoned people of who they considered to be inferior races and foreign nationals. Over 40,000 men and women, at least that's how much they guess, men and women perish there, whether by execution or by disease or by scientific experiment gone wrong. Dachau became the prototype for many other prison camps that would eventually be built, and people from every ethnic and religious community in Germany during World War II, who they considered to be enemies of the Third Reich, were sent to them. Now, I've not visited the site, but I'm told that it is a very somber place in this world to visit. And that there is a museum there that contains some of the relics and artifacts and many of the photos depicting the shocking brutality that the prisoners experienced while there. As one goes through the museum and then begins his or her exit, as they approach the door, they will see there, I'm told, a small sign, a warning for all who read it. And the sign says this, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. This saying, of course, is variously attributed, but the same idea is most certainly in Paul's mind here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For the last number of Sundays, we've been looking at a very specific cultural issue that the church in Corinth was dealing with, and that is this whole debate as to whether or not food offered to idols in worship could be eaten by Christians. I shared this with you last week, but in the church you had this one group of people, uh, the, the spiritually mature, who were saying, guys, this is no big deal. There's no God but the true God, and so since this is true, it's within my rights to eat this food without worrying about its origin. But then you had another group in the church, and Paul classifies these as the weaker Christians, those with a weaker conscience. And they're weaker because of their former life of idol worship B.C. or before Christ. Those idols to them were still very much a subjective reality for them. And seeing the more mature in the church eating of that food was causing them to do the same. And therefore, they were stumbling into sin. So Paul's essential argument up until now has been, yes, of course, as Christians, we all have rights. We have a wonderful freedom in Christ. And Paul talks about idols and how idols are nothing. Idols are nothing at all. But sometimes, he says, the best course of action is to restrict our own rights out of love for our weaker brothers and sisters. And he used all of chapter 9, pointing to himself, showing the church, hey guys, this is what I've done out of love for you, and this is what you ought to do out of love for one another. Now we arrive at chapter 10. 
And Paul introduces this subject of idolatry, idol worship. And while he still has in mind the need for the strong to love the weak, and we're going to return to that next week, Paul's message here in verses 1 to 14 is that there is another reason why they should abstain from idol food. Even though idols in themselves are nothing, Paul says, here's the reason why you should abstain. He says, fiddling around with idolatry will have and can have serious spiritual consequences in the life of the Christian. Messing around with things that we don't understand behind the guise of having my own rights is very dangerous for the Christian, Paul says. And to convey this message, what he does is he gives them a bit of a history lesson. Paul the Apostle looks back, as it were, at at the long history of God's dealings with his Old Testament people, and he points to the errors that the Israelites made in order to both remind and to warn the church of the danger of idolatry, just as the sign at Dachau is meant to warn the reader of the danger of dictatorial leadership and a disregard for the well-being of our fellow men. Paul, in essence, is saying, church, learn from their mistakes. Learn from their error. Don't follow the path that our forefathers walked And those of you who are so certain of yourselves, those of you who count yourselves to be so spiritual, I warn you because you may soon find that you yourself face downfall. Title of the sermon is a simple one, a warning against idolatry, a warning against idolatry. And dear Grace City Church, if we can listen that the Spirit will give us the grace to listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is to us what the Exodus narrative was to the first century church. It's a word of warning. Today, Paul is going to teach us about the danger of idolatry. And while idolatry is probably not something any of us think about in the morning when we open up our eyes, the very fact that this is here and has been preserved for us, ought to be taken by us seriously, ought to be taken by us as a warning of the reality of idolatry. And may God give us his grace to help us identify it and flee from it. There's a number of ways that we could unpack this chapter, many ways. I'll just simply try to follow Paul's logic here. We'll start with a word of admonition, or if you like, a word of warning, in verses 1 to 12. And we'll finish with a word of consolation or comfort in verses 13 and 14. Admonition and consolation. First, we listen to his word of admonition in verses 1 to 12. Now, I'm just going to say this in the beginning. Just like chapter 9, chapter 10 is admittedly, uh, has some themes that are somewhat difficult to grasp, all right? Uh, But with the Holy Spirit's help, we're going to look at this together and we'll do our best to try to understand what's written here. All right, the word of admonition. You'll note that we began reading at the end of chapter 9. And we began there because there Paul speaks of disqualification, failing to reach the goal. And since in the original there were no verse breaks, there's no chapter breaks, 
verses 1 to 10 almost seem to be, have been triggered by what Paul was just saying in verse 9 in his mind. In other words, he's, it's almost like he's saying, now guys, speaking of disqualification, let me give you a real life example of some people who really did fail to reach the goal, that is our Israelite forebears or forefathers. Lest any of the church in Corinth thinks that they are beyond falling, what Paul is doing here is he wants the, the church to see the continuity between them, the church in Corinth, and the Old Testament church in the wilderness, the assembly of God's people. So what he does is this. He, he begins to highlight certain uh, uh, typological features of Exodus, typology being the study of prefigurative symbols or Old Testament objects or themes that point forward to a spiritual reality in the New Testament. And so he names a few of these. Uh, the first is the cloud. He talks about the sea. He talks about the rock. Okay? He says the whole assembly was delivered from Egyptian slavery and then was led by the pillar of cloud by day. And then every one of them passed through the Red Sea on dry land. You remember that story from Sunday school where Moses raised up his arms and the Red Sea parted and two walls of water formed on each side and the Israelites traveled over on dry land. You remember that story. Uh, these, are, these are figures. These are objects. These are physical things, cloud and, and sea water. But Paul interprets them to be early versions or prefigurements of a spiritual reality. And in this case, Christian baptism. We see this there in verse 2. All were baptized under the cloud. All were baptized under the sea. He does this also with food, which of course we know that the food that the Israelites ate in the wilderness was manna, this sort of sweet bread, flaky bread that fell from heaven in the wilderness. And drink or water, though you'll notice that Paul is careful not to use the word water. And I think he does so because he interprets these as symbols or early versions of a later reality, and that reality is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So he says that the Israelites ate bread from heaven in Exodus 16, and they drank from the rock, Exodus 17. These tangible elements, these physical, visible elements are symbols of Christ, who is both the source of Israelites' uh, 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 spiritual sustenance and the church's spiritual sustenance. And friends, every time you and I experience the sacraments, we have the same experience as the church did in the wilderness. The, the, the sacraments, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols that point to a spiritual reality of what Jesus has done. So Old Testament baptism, the Old Testament meal, look forward to what Christ would do, and the New Testament sacraments that we receive look back to what Christ has done. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul talk in this sort of like uber-spiritual kind of way? Is Paul just being fancy? Is he just showing off his sort of hermeneutical or interpretive skill? Well, no. And he shows us in verses 5 to 6 why he's writing this way. Look again at those verses. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire or crave evil 
as they did. Now, in your Bibles, you might have various words there for that word overthrown, but that's not quite forceful enough in the original. The, the real force of that word is, is scattered, scattered, like imagine dead bodies. That's, that's what Paul's trying to convey here. Paul says that all, the whole assembly came out of Egypt the whole assembly partook of the sacraments in their prefigured form, but some desired, or better, craved after evil, and God scattered their bodies in the wilderness. All of them were direct recipients of God's blessings, but God, ju God judged some of them. Because they failed, and they failed to reach the goal, which was the promised land. Now, Paul says there's a reason that this happened. The reason that this happened is shown in verse 11, so that these things could be recorded down in Scripture for later generations of God's people to read and to be warned by them. Friends, we tend to skip over the Old Testament and our daily dose of Scripture. We tend to only open the New Testament or open the New Testament more frequently than we do the Old Testament. And so much of that is because we have a hard time understanding what was happening in the Old Testament. But Paul says if you do that, you're cheating yourself. The stories are pictures, are events that actually happened. But they were written down for our instruction people on whom the end of the ages have come. The end of all things is near, Paul says. He says, God is wrapping things up, church. This is not the time for us to grow lazy in our spiritual pilgrimage. This is not the time for us to ignore the mistakes of our forefathers. Yes, those things happen in a, a historical, cultural setting, but by God's providence, he means for them to warn us. And so he offers four specific instances of how the Israelites craved evil and why they suffered God's judgment. Paul very bluntly is warning the church not to do the same things that the Jews did. Things like idolatry in verse 7. That's a reference there to Exodus 32, the, the golden calf incident. Remember that story again from Sunday school? Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He's in the glory and the presence of the Lord, and no one could come near the mountain because if they got that close, they would be destroyed. But down bottom, the people are getting impatient. And they say, where is this Moses? Where is this God? Aaron, the high priest, Aaron, form for us a golden calf, a God that can lead us through the wilderness. And so quoting Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, Paul says that after they formed their God, they had a big feast and they rose up to play. But in the original, the rabbinic tradition also shows this too, that play word carries the meaning of revelry, sexual activity, sexual immorality, orgy. So as a result, 3,000 people died that day by the sword, probably many more by the plague that the Lord sent. It's a warning against idolatry. That probably prompts Paul to move on and warn against sexual immorality in verse 8, after he's already spoken at length in this letter about sexual immorality. 
This here is probably a reference to uh, Numbers 25, when the Israelites were invited by the Moabites to have a big meal with them. And so they decided, okay, we'll come along with you. And they offered sacrifices to their God, the Baal of Peor. And afterwards, they engaged in gross sexual immorality with their women. And on that day, 23,000 died by a plague that the Lord sent. It's a warning against sexual immorality. Then later, Paul warns in verse 9 that they tested Christ. They tested Christ. That's probably a reference to Numbers 21, where the people grew impatient with the Lord and with Moses, criticizing God's, Yahweh's provision of food. Again, notice that Christ is present there. It was he whom they tested. And the Lord sent fiery snakes. And it went out throughout the camp. And the Bible says in Numbers 21 that many of the people of Israel died. Finally, the, Paul warns against grumbling, against complaining. Anybody grumble or complain today? Don't raise your hand. Against the Lord in verse 10. We, of course, know that happened many times in the wilderness, and the result was that God's destroying angel carried out judgment on them. It's just history. Paul's just listing examples from history. And in verse 12, he offers a sharp and fitting conclusion. Therefore, Corinthians, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest they fall. Sobering. Here's this church filled with men and women who count themselves to be very strong Christians. Men and women who partake of the sacraments every time they're offered, feeling so very proud in their hearts, feeling so very secure in their Christianity. And Paul turns to the church and he says, are you sure? Let him who thinks he stands take heed, yet lest we fall. Yes, we are secure in Christ. Yes, we are saved, not by our works, but by grace. And our works neither maintain nor endanger our status in the sight of God. But friends, security that fills one's head with biblical knowledge and that relies on spiritual experiences and confidence and spiritual experiences but has no transforming effect on the way that we live our lives in both private and in public, friends, it's a false security. It's a false security. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, John Calvin notes that there are two kinds of assurance. That is confidence, security, and our right standing in the sight of God. The first is one that rests on the sure promises of God, and thus the believer triumphs boldly over Satan and sin. Yet, they are never confident in themselves. It is not a self-confidence. It is a confidence in Jesus because we know we are weak and so we hold fast to Christ. But the second kind of assurance rests on self. This one is so puffed up with the gifts that we have, with the knowledge that we have, that we believe that we are beyond the reach of danger and we're satisfied thus in our condition. 
These are the ones that Paul is addressing, those who are satisfied with themselves, those who are puffed up, who are confident in their flesh. Their assurance is grounded in self, dear ones, and not God. Now, lest you think that I'm preaching down at you, I know this by experience. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. I was baptized in water at the age of 12. I partook of the sacraments all throughout my teenage years, the Lord's Supper. But in my later teen years, the early part of my 20s, I did things that if they were projected on this screen behind me, I would run out of this church building and I would never return. You'd have to find yourself another pastor. You see, friends, my upbringing, my church experiences, my knowledge of the Bible convinced a young, brash, and arrogant teenage man that I was okay with God. That I was okay in the sight of God. But I knew deep down that my life was not pleasing to him. And I didn't care. I went out and did what I want, and I came home, and I felt a little bit of guilt, but I was always ready to go to sleep. Sleep has a way of pushing away the conviction that the Holy Spirit is bringing on us. And had it not been for the arresting grace of Jesus in my early 20s, I too would likewise have perished. That friends, don't misunderstand by that story that one has to misbehave badly to be under God's wrath. We can be very good people and yet still be people whose confidence is in self, our knowledge, our experience, our traditions, and not Christ. And dear ones, is this not how we put Christ to the test? Is this not how we look at him, claiming to believers, be believers, yet refusing to rely on him, relying on the work of his grace as the source of our righteousness alone? You see, friends, our world tells us, our world tells us, that being strong is the highest virtue. Being confident, young people, being confident is the highest virtue that you can attain. Be yourself. Be you. Don't let anyone tell you differently. But Paul says that in the kingdom of God, those who think themselves strong are actually in the greatest danger. Those who say to themselves, I got this. Paul says, watch out. It's the self-righteous who live their lives near the cliff with their backs turned, partying, head held high, but who are inching closer, never knowing how close they are actually coming to spiritual disaster before it's too late. So because he loves this church, and because the Father loves this church, he loves us. He warns us through his word. He warns the strong. Friends, will this be a warning for us? Will this be a warning? Will this be admonition for us? So a word of warning. Secondly, a word of consolation. A word of comfort. Having warned the strong, Paul doesn't want to leave this section without a word of consolation for the weak. Now, if I were to go around this room and ask uh, someone name a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that you've known all your life or you've memorized. 
chances are everybody would say, well, verse 13, verse 13, that's, that's the one I remember from this passage. And that's likely because we'd like to think of ourselves uh, as, as the weak, the, the ones who need God's help, that ones that rely on God's faithfulness and our weakness, rather than uh, uh, those that are under God's judgment or those who are spiritually proud, perhaps. Because if we're honest, we don't typically think of ourselves as spiritually proud. I knew I wouldn't get a lot of amens today. At any rate, verse 13 almost feels like an interruption in Paul's flow of argument. He could have easily gone from verse 12 to verse 14 in his call to flee idolatry. So we have to ask ourselves, why does Paul include verse 13? Why is verse 13 there? Well, after the gloom and doom of verses 5 to 12, warning the spiritual well-to-dos who are filled with self-righteousness, Paul seems to have in mind those who are discouraged by the negative example of the Old Testament Israelites. Perhaps some are there that are listening to the reminder of God's harsh judgment of his Old Testament people, and and, and they're wondering themselves if if God's New Testament people are also under the crosshairs as well. After all, idolatry was a cultural norm in their day. The temptation was all around them to cave into the pressure of idolatry. What would happen to them if they caved in? Maybe they've already went and eaten in idols' temples because the strong prompted them to. Would they face God's judgment? If they resisted idol worship, would they be persecuted? Indeed, there are documented examples of new Christians in the Greco-Roman world who were abandoned by their families because they renounced idol worship. So Paul says, listen, the temptation that you're experiencing To turn after the way of the world is normal. It's common to man. This is not a unique experience you're having. I've always appreciated this verse. That's why we know it. But I've always appreciated this verse. So often, when temptations to sin come, we tend to think that we're the only ones in the whole world that struggle with that particular sin. And we isolate ourselves. Because we don't think anybody could possibly understand what it's like to go through that thing. And so often that isolation pushes us further into sin. Paul says, no, this temptation is experienced by your brothers and sisters the world over. And just as common, just as common as temptations are, I want you to hear me say, equally as common is the faithfulness of God to his people. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but along with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may endure, that you may continue to bear it until the end. You see, friends, I'm going to hit you with a truth bomb. Every one of us is idolatrous at heart. Every single one of us could be described by what Paul is talking to in this chapter. Every one of us has a few idols in our spiritual closets, whether we count ourselves to be godly or mature or less than godly or less than mature. What's an idol? The idols of our day no longer look like the idols of Paul's day. 
They don't have a face like the idols of Paul's day had. They weren't made with, they aren't made with human hands. But just because the idol is not metal or, or gold or wood, it does not mean that they are not real. Paul talks a whole lot about idolatry in his letters. In Colossians 3, Miss Cynthia read that for us last Sunday for our scripture reading. He says in verse 5, evil desire and covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is craving after that which God has not given to us. And Paul says that's idolatry. In Romans 1, Paul says that in our natural state, apart from grace, we've all exchanged the truth of God for lies and his glory for images resembling mortal men. So what is an idol? We may define an idol, I'll put it on the screen for you, as the thing that we exchange God for in our hearts in order to gain safety significance, or satisfaction. It's the thing, the thing that we exchange God for in order to gain safety, significance, or satisfaction. Success can be an idol. Prominence, notoriety can be an idol. Acceptance by others, a desire to be well-liked, can be an idol. Our idol could be freedoms, our comforts, like the Corinthians, being able to enjoy God's good gifts without anybody telling us what we can or cannot do. Our idol may be a girlfriend. Our idol may be a boyfriend. Our idol may be a nice house. Our idol may be nice furniture. Our idol may be an immaculate yard. Our idol may be good grades, getting a scholarship. Our idol may be a better house, a better job, higher pay, recognition by our employers and our managers. Our idol may be usefulness. Someone says to me, I don't hear a single thing in that list that's a bad thing. What are you talking about these are idols? What's wrong with having these things? Nothing is the answer. That is until the thing replaces God as the first goal of our lives, as the object of our desire, dear ones. Friends, listen, Paul is drawing a distinction between those who know they're idolatrous and long to be delivered from their idolatry through the grace of Christ and those who are idolatrous but whose hearts are so hard that they simply don't care. And Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 that those who make this exchange in their hearts are in danger of God's judgment because in their hard and unrepentant heart, God gives them over to the object of their desire, and they will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. My friends, hell will not merely be filled with Hitlers and rapists and mass murderers. Hell will be filled with good, well-meaning, nice people who desired and craved the thing, whatever it may be more than God. Dear ones, our passage is meant to be a warning for the strong and a comfort for the weak. The question for us is, which one are we? Which one are we? 
Do we believe that we have it all together before God, but know nothing of resisting temptation because we freely give in to it? It's the strong. Are we weak? We know how susceptible we are to temptation. But we are so constantly looking to the drink, the rock, the spiritual rock that's Christ who is tempted in every way so that when temptation comes, we know that he will be faithful to open the exit door. The exit door of escape for the Christian is given by God. And he knows how to give it to us in our time of greatest need. So therefore, my beloved, he says in verse 14, flee, run from idolatry. God will make a way. There is no trickery to this. There's no magic. There's no secret. The answer is simply run through the exit door. Alistair Begg is a favorite preacher of mine. He's a Scottish preacher. And he tells a story about a young man who comes to his pastor and he says to him, you don't understand, pastor, how it all works in the real world. Out here, we're being blown around by all sorts of desires that we have no control over. Pastor, what do we do other than just give in to the desires? So the story goes on. He continues, the pastor invited him to come with him to the shore. And he says, my friend, let's, let's look at all the ships together, the ships sailing. And the pastor pointed out to the young man that there's some ships that are sailing in this direction and that there are some ships that are sailing in the opposite direction. And quoting from an old, old poem, he says this, one ship sails east and another west by the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. You see, dear ones, the winds of temptation are not the problem. Temptation is experienced by the most godly among us and the least godly. Every single one of us are tempted every hour to make that exchange for the thing. But the difference between the one who stands and the one who falls is the set of his sails. The one among us who runs from temptation are the ones who understand its power but are even more convinced that the only way to conquer sin is to keep running through and hiding in the one who already defeated our sin. We do not have, the writer of the Hebrew says, a high priest that's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's the spiritual rock. He's the rock that follows us, and he knows how to provide the way of escape because he knows temptation. He endured it all the way to the end. He never gave in, and then he took our sin. And he took our sorrows and he took our idolatry with him up the hill and suffered and died for us, friends. So the promise of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, would be always true for us. 
And friends, those of you who are believers in this room can say the same thing. How many times have you received a call or a text message in a private moment of temptation? How many times have you heard a knock on the door or the doorbell ring or a friend coming along by the house when they weren't invited in a moment of temptation? God knows how to deliver us from temptation. But the question for us is, will we run through the exit door? and to the rock. Friends, the warnings of Scripture, as I close, the warnings of Scripture are there because God knows we need them. Listen, Paul had, Paul had no trouble at all with the tension between the completeness of Christ's redemption and our need to persevere by grace. No problem for him. So the question for us this morning is, are our sails set this morning? Is our hope in the Savior who, despite our idolatry, continues to bear with us, providing the way of escape when sin comes knocking, or are we hoping in false saviors, the thing that we've exchanged God for in hopes of finding safety or significance or security somewhere else? What's our hope built on this morning? Is our hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Dare we not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name? Friends, prominence and notoriety will let you down. You hear that? I said a couple weeks ago, we all want to be liked, we all want to be known, we all want to be pointed at as, oh, that's a nice guy, that's a good guy, that's a pretty lady, that's a talented person. Prominence and notoriety will let us down because we will always want more. And when we fail to get it, we will be crushed. Freedom to live as we please will always let us down because there's going to come a day when our plans are interrupted and the kids get sick and someone needs help and our comforts are just utterly removed, we will be crushed if our idol is comfort. Our usefulness will let us down because there's going to come a day when the job changes or retirement comes or our effectiveness is cut off. And if usefulness, the thing, has controlled our whole lives, we will be crushed. But Jesus was crushed for us. Jesus was crushed for us so that God would never let us down in our moment of temptation. God is faithful. In his son, he provided the exit door of escape so he could escape from his wrath. So in our moments of temptation, he would provide the way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is the sign on the exit door of the museum. Those who fail to learn from history will be condemned to repeat its mistakes. It doesn't have to be us today, friends. It doesn't have to be us. Join me. Dear Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and my sisters this morning, my friends who are here today. Lord, we all sit under this same word today. Not a single one of us are so strong that we don't need your grace right now. 
It's just that some of us think we're stronger than we are. Others of us know how weak we are and we feel so condemned and we feel so broken and we feel so weak. Lord, I pray that today that through the ministry of prayer and the Holy Spirit that you would set people free from the bondage that they're carrying with them. I pray for the strong that you would humble him or her and help him to see that apart from Christ, he is nothing. I pray that he would repent, that she would repent, help him see that he is guilty or she is guilty, and that in their pride, they have dishonored you with idolatrous loves. Forgive us, O Lord, all of us. Forgive us according to your unfailing love. I pray you do this all, Lord, for the sake of your son, because that's why we gather on Sundays. This isn't a motivational speech. We're here because we want to see our lives changed. We're here because we know you're the only one that can do it. So we give ourselves to you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.